0: in 1 John chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 26 to 29. And uh, we find ourselves actually at a kind of strange point in the book of 1 John. But the reason why I say it's strange is because these two verse, uh, these uh, four verses, they can be broken up into two sections. And these two sections are kind of hinges. They finish thoughts, but then they lead to new thoughts. And so uh They're pretty interesting in the sense that they both serve as a summary for what John had written previously, but it also propels the theme of the letter forward. So we're going to read through these verses to see what John wants us to key in on here uh, as he moves from chapter 2 to chapter 3. But before we do that, let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful to you for your word. We're grateful to you for how it doesn't change. And how it reflects your character because it is from you. Because it's from you, Lord, we know that we can trust it. And we pray that, Lord, you would help us to meditate on what it means for these words to be true. What it means for these words to be from you. And we pray that, Lord, you would allow for us to be teachable. That you would allow for us to consider deeply what you want us to know here in your word. As we, uh, as we read it, as we study it. May you be pleased, may you be honored as we study your word this evening. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. All right, verse 26 to 29 of 1 John chapter two. The word of God reads this. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him." Many of us know a good portion of our family history because our families, they're pretty good about passing on where we're from, right? Where we're from, how we got here today. For those of you, especially from immigrant families, you know how you came over to America, why you came over to America, and what difficulties your, your family faced when they first got here. How they combat, combated difficulty so that life could be easier for each successive generation. We know these these facts, right? That our family wants us to know how we got here. There's a settled confidence that we have therefore about who we are, right? Who our families are. But what if? What if there was something your family was not telling you? What if everything that you thought you knew about your family ended up being built off of a lie? What if one of your ancestors was not they said they were. They came under a different name so that they could flee from legal prosecution. What if your family was responsible for one of, or some of, the worst atrocities in human history? What would that do to you? It'd be unsettling, wouldn't it, to find out that your family wasn't who they thought they were, or who wasn't who you thought they were, It would be really unsettling. You might even wonder if you even know who you are. Well, when John is writing to his his readers, he's writing to people who have been the target of false teachers, who are trying to tell them that everything that they knew about the gospel, about faith, was not good enough. These heretics, they're known as Gnostics, they claimed that they had received a secret knowledge, a higher form of spirituality because of what they had been taught, what they had heard from the Holy Spirit. And they were trying to deceive others in the church to follow after their teachings. They were basically saying to the church, I know what you've been taught, but guess what? I've reached a higher plane of spirituality. I know better now. You need to listen to me. That's what they were saying. And so these people in the church, they were disturbed. They are unsettled. And so John writes in order to provide them with comfort and with assurance of salvation for those who have truly believed. Those who have truly believed in Jesus Christ and repented of their sins are those who abide or remain with Jesus. But what does that mean? How does this help someone who has had the core of their identity rattled? By questions and teachings meant to convince someone that everything that they thought they knew about the faith was just not good enough. Well, we're going to see how abiding in Jesus will provide assurance of salvation to those who are doubting through two reasons why Christians are called to abide in Jesus. Two reasons why Christians are called to abide in Jesus. The first reason Christians are called to abide in Jesus is because abiding in Jesus teaches truth. Abiding in Jesus teaches truth. Verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So John is summarizing what he had just written about the Antichrist, the unbelievers who had gone out from the church and embraced this new teaching, this Gnostic teaching, and he clearly describes their actions as deception. John's not going over the top here He's calling what they were doing what it was. These individuals, they were not interested in a respectful dialogue about theology. They were not trying to apply different biblical perspectives towards an understanding of a political issue. They were trying, they were clearly trying to deceive the church by teaching them something that was entirely contrary to what Jesus taught and what the rest of the Bible taught. This wasn't some innocent conversation. Right? They weren't trying to, um, to, to challenge people to think differently. They were clearly trying to deceive people. John indicates that the deception of these teachers, it was an active and continual practice of attempting to undermine the faith of the people of the church. And he does that through the present tense. Which means, right, this means that the church should not look at what these false teachers were doing as something that happened in the past. They were trying to deceive, right? Uh, They're trying to deceive. It's an active, present action that these false teachers were doing. This wasn't in the past. This is right now. This is right now. It right? is a threat to the health of the church. This is a present danger that threatened to infiltrate and infect the church if the church was not careful to test the teaching that they heard from those who were trying to say that they had something that they heard from God. And despite this ever-present danger that the church faced from these false teachers who were continually trying to spread their false teaching to the people in the church, John provides some comfort. He He provides some comfort in verse 27. He says this, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So John shifts his tone. First he was summarizing, um, first he was summarizing what the false teachers were talking about. Now he turns his attention to those who have genuinely repented of their sins, placed their faith in Christ, and he wants to tell them something. And there is a sense of uncertainty that they had. They they were disturbed by what they heard from these false teachers. And so John reminds them, "You you don't have to feel like you're lost. You don't have to feel like you don't know anything anymore. There is something that you do have that's concrete, and that's the anointing which you have received from Christ. That is what abides in you. This anointing, in case you forgot, was something that John described back in verse 20. It's the anointing that's from God the Father. And it's the Holy Spirit that's given to every single believer once they place their faith in Christ. This is the Holy Spirit who Jesus describes in John 14 as the helper, the spirit of truth, who abides with believers and teaches us all things concerning God and holiness. He is the one who has taught us everything that we know about the faith, sometimes we forget that we're not alone because we forget that one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us is the Holy Spirit. Right? Christ first, of course. Right? You don't have salvation without Christ. You don't have the Holy Spirit without Christ. But one of the, one of the other greatest gifts that we, we have is the Holy Spirit. Right? And when we think about the idea of God being with us, It's far easier for us to think of God the Father as if if he's the force in Star Wars, like he's just ever-present in in everything, right? Or perhaps more like Zeus in the movie Hercules, where he's just up above in the clouds looking down at what we're doing. It's far easier to think of God in that way. Uh, We tend to think of Jesus in a similar way, where we know he's up in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and sure, we know that he intercedes for us uh, he prays for us but in a sense he's just still kind of far off far away but mu- but but much of what we uh think about how, in terms of how God the Father and Jesus are with us in our lives it's very it's very mystical it's very uh vaguely spiritual in nature they're around right but they they but in reality, they're just kind of like impersonal forces that we don't really see. So it's kind of like, I will trust in you, God, but I don't really know where you are. I don't really, um, really know if you're doing anything, so like I'll trust you, but I don't know. Right? It's super vague. And um, it, we feel at times that because it's vague, because God is so far off, we feel like we, uh, we don't we aren't really helped by him. That's what we feel. Of course, this is not what we believe. Right? We know that God the Father and Jesus care for us, and we know that they're with us. But it's hard for us to know that, to be settled in that, because we can't see them. So at times we think, I don't even know if he's here, or I don't even know if they're here. I feel alone. I feel abandoned by God because I haven't heard from him. I don't feel like he's with me. How do we answer that? Well, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is that answer. He's always with us. He dwells within us presently. If you didn't already notice, every single member of the Trinity is involved in 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 our salvation. God the Father sends Jesus Jesus Christ is the one who lived the perfect life that we were unable to live. He was the one who died on the cross. He rose from the grave, and when he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was sent to us to awaken our dead spiritual hearts, to teach us all things concerning Christ, and to help us grow to become more like him. Every single member of the Trinity is actively involved in your salvation and your Sanctification, your growth in Christ. You're not alone. You're not alone. It's an intensely personal thing that God does for us. So even though you might feel like you're alone, when you're dealing with personal problems in life, when you have trials, when you're suffering, or a combination of all of those things, you are never truly alone. God is truly with us at all times, and we can have confidence of that, Because of the Holy Spirit who lives in our hearts. Even if you can't see God the Father, even if you don't really know what Jesus is doing right now, you know that God the Holy Spirit is with you presently. Yeah, it's a spiritual reality, right? There's no scan that you can go to at the hospital that checks to see if the Holy Spirit's in your heart, right? You can't open up your chest and be like, hey, Jesus, hey, Holy Spirit, are you here? Or you can't do that. But just as present as that constant threat of false teachers uh, uh, loom over the church, uh, so is the Holy Spirit constantly with us. He constantly abides with us. He doesn't say, "Uh, you know, I'm I'm really tired of living in your heart. I think I'm going to go take a vacation. So, you know, for the next two weeks, you just take care of yourself. I'll come back and I'll care for you. No, he doesn't do that. He's always with you. He's always with you. God gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can have everything we need to not only live this life in a way that pleases him, but can also strive to act as much like Jesus would in our circumstances so that others can see the profound difference the gospel can have in a life that's fully surrendered to God. We're not alone, even though we might feel alone. And also another thing too, we have a church family. And each single member of our church family has the Holy Spirit who abides in them as well. We share in the Holy Spirit together. You're not alone. He's always with you. So the Holy Spirit, he is a wonderful gift from God and that we often forget him. We can cling to him and rely upon him because we know that he abides in us presently and always will abide in us. He was He's here to teach us about Christ. He's here to help us battle temptation, and he's here to grow us more and more like Jesus. And because of this gift, or because of this present gift of the Holy Spirit, that dangerous allure of the false teacher's claim of, hey, I have secret knowledge that you don't have, it's no longer a tempting option. It's no longer a tempting option for believers who understand the significance of having the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit's from God and he himself is fully God, John says Christians don't need teachers who have claimed to receive a secret knowledge or a secret revelation from God to teach them new things about him. All of the knowledge that Christians need to know about God has already been given. It's been given to us by God in his word. The Holy Spirit accompanied the human authors to help us understand who God is, what he is like, what he has done. All the truth that we need to know more about God is found within these pages. What that means is, it's not that we don't need pastors or Sunday school teachers or whatnot when it says here that we don't need teachers. But what it means is you don't need someone claiming secret revelation from the Lord. You already have everything you need to know in God's word, which means that if any pastor, if any Sunday school teacher, any small group leader, anyone else who tells you that they know what God has to say to you for your life at this moment, if anyone says that to you and their teaching is not consistent with what is found within these pages, then they are not teaching you God's word. They're not from God. They are false teachers who are trying to deceive you. Even if they say, I believe in Jesus. I am like you. I am a Christian. If what they say doesn't match up with what God's word says, they're not Christians. They might think they are, but they're not Christians. That teaching is not from God. It's from man. Because God's word is just like him, their teaching or our teaching, should never be different from what his word says. It's going to be just like his character. It's going to be true. It's not going to be a lie. We can trust God's word as it has been given to us through the Holy Spirit because it will not tell us anything different from what God has already taught us. Sure, the word of God is not necessarily exhaustive in its instruction But it will certainly provide enough principles for you to make decisions that will glorify God and honor others. Now, this next example that I put in, just totally forgot that today was Valentine's Day. But it's applicable anyway, all right? The Holy Spirit and God's Word will never tell you who you should date, nor will it tell you who you shouldn't date, okay? Even if you feel no peace, inside you about dating someone. That's not a message from God. Okay, that's not a message from God that you shouldn't date someone. You should never, ever, 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 ever tell someone, I'm not gonna date you because the Holy Spirit told me that I can't date you. Never, ever, ever say that. It might be the right decision ultimately. But just because it seemed like it was from God, just because you couldn't sleep, just because your your stomach was tied up in knots, doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't mean that it was from God. It could simply mean that you saw a concerning pattern or characteristic in this person's life that told you maybe they aren't exactly mature, or maybe they don't exactly love Jesus that much. Right? The presence of feelings or the lack of presence of feelings doesn't mean that God is speaking to you specifically on, you should date this person, or you shouldn't date this person. Okay? Be careful, brothers and sisters, of attributing something to God too quickly. It could be God's grace to you to allow you to feel uneasy about a situation, but the unease could also stem from other things. You don't want to be in the habit of telling people that God is speaking to us when, in fact, he may not be speaking. In Jeremiah 14, one of the reasons why God had a case against the Israelites is because the prophets were going around and they were saying, Thus says the Lord. I have a vision from him. He says this. He says this. He says this. And God said, I wasn't talking to you guys. I never gave you a message. What are you saying? So be careful when you use that language of, God told me this. Be very, very careful of that. I know that's probably going to bother some of you. It might even be confusing because sometimes it does seem like God is speaking to you. But the reason why I thought it would be appropriate to bring this up here is because as John is reminding his readers about the truth of all that they've uh, learned about Jesus, who the Holy Spirit is, and what constitutes Uh, true righteousness and spirituality according to God. He's trying to tell them what is true in God's word, right? How do you know it's, you know, how how do we know it's true? Because it's consistent with what God's word says. We know that in the scriptures, no one ever uh, like casts lots to figure out whether they should date someone, right? Or whether they, they, they should take a certain job or another job. The reason why we put this here is because we want to make sure that we're not acting or we're not, we're not adopting that mystical spirit, like vaguely spiritual view of how God works in our lives. We have to be careful. We have to have an accurate view of who God is, how he operates. It's vital for Christians to understand this because we abide in him. You can't simply operate, brothers and sisters, on what feels true to you. You need to operate on what is objectively true. You can't trust your feelings, okay? This is not Star Wars. Trusting your feelings, you know them to be true, that is a lie. The lie straight from the pit of hell. You cannot trust your feelings. Why? It's from your heart, right? What does God say about your heart? It's wicked, right? It's deceptive. You can't trust it. So you can't trust your feelings. Besides, remember who said that? Darth Vader. We don't listen to him, okay? Anyways, you have to operate on what's objectively true that's found in God's word, okay? You can't just adopt another person's view on something because of who they are, their popularity, or because their words sound true. We live in a celebrity pastor-driven culture, right? Right? If Piper or J-Max says something, it's almost gospel for some people. That's not necessarily true. You always have to compare what is being taught to what the scriptures say. It has to be accurate according to what God's word says. We have to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. We have to study the word we have to study what people teach us to make sure that it is true. It doesn't matter whether it's a famous pastor who says it, whether it's your parents, your friends, whoever it might be, whatever they teach, it has to be consistent with the Word of God. All right? If it's in, in line with what the Word of God says, then whoever is teaching you is doing their job. Right? They're doing what's right. They're accurately representing the Scriptures. I think you've heard this from me before, but let me just remind you, that any kind of counsel or teaching that you hear from me, it's, or any other pastor, or any other spiritual leader, it's only worth, it's only worth anything if it's accurate according to the scriptures. Right? Outside of me telling you what the scriptures say, I have no authority. You don't have to listen to me. And you don't have to listen to anyone else outside of the, what the word is, of, of God says. This is the only thing that has authority. I don't have any authority. Pastor Henry doesn't have any authority. Pastor Ray doesn't have any authority. Jamek has no authority. Piper has no, no authority. The word of God alone has authority. I borrow, we borrow the authority from the scriptures when we tell you this is what God says, but there's nothing in us that you trust. You trust the word and you trust the word only. So I know that now the pressure's on and I gotta make sure I state to this. All right. so here we go. Um. When, when John says, uh, again, when, when John says that you don't need anyone to teach you, he's not reversing what Paul said about the importance of pastors and teachers being gifts to the church. He's addressing this idea of secret knowledge, right? this uh, mystical knowledge that people are claiming to have. You don't need a new teacher to teach you things that, uh, about Christ that are unattainable on your own. You don't need to trust someone who has, uh, who has a mystical spiritual experience who has been able to to see these things. You have all the spiritual truth that you need given to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. He's giving you God's word too. Now, as a result of the truthfulness of what we've received in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, John commands his readers to abide or remain in Jesus. It's kind of a strange thing to say, right? Because he already said, this Holy Spirit abides in you. So why would he say, You abide in him. What John's doing here is he's reminding people who already are in the Spirit not to grow complacent, but to continue to stand firm in their faith in Jesus. John knows that it's easy for us, once we've heard the same truths from the Bible over and over again, to grow complacent. You've probably heard teaching from the Gospels at least four or five times in your life. Or you've probably heard the parables four or five different times in your life. Uh, especially, uh, the, especially the ones where, um, you know, the I am statements or, or whatnot. You've heard all these things before. It can be very easy for you to shut off and be like, I've studied this before. I, I, I know that right now, like a, I feel like every single group in this church is going through First John. So for some of you ladies going through the 1 John series or for some of you guys in men's ministry, you've probably already heard 1 John 2 because I think we're going slower than everyone else. Right, so it's probably, it's probably easy for you to be like, eh, whatever. Like, I've already heard this. Um, it's easy for us to grow complacent because we feel like, well, I've heard it already. I don't really need to review it again. But what John is reminding us to do is don't grow complacent. Don't think that you're safe just because you heard it. You have to remember that you are in constant spiritual warfare. And there are times when, because you're familiar, you kind of let things just kind of skate over you, but you're actually in the process ignoring what God wants to teach you. Maybe the reason why all these groups are going through 1 John is because we as a church really need to go through 1 John. And so if you hear the same lessons over and over again, instead of saying, I already heard it, I don't want to hear it again, you really should be saying, "Mm, what's God trying to teach me? Is there something I am missing because God seems to be teaching me the same things over and over again? If we grow complacent, if we grow lazy, we will compromise. We will believe wrong things regarding the truths of Scripture. A belief in the wrong things will influence our feelings, which in turn will affect our actions. Christians must practice constant vigilance in their lives to believe what is true because it really is hard to be a Christian in an age that rejects Christianity as narrow-minded and bigoted. You have to be careful of what you let in because it could reshape what you think about Christianity, what you think faith is. It could challenge you to redefine your idea of what is loving. Brothers and sisters, you don't define what is loving to a person based off of what you feel is most loving to you. You define what is loving based off of what God says is most loving. You'll probably hear someone say someday when you correct them, out of love. I don't appreciate what you just told me. That wasn't very loving of you. That wasn't kind. I didn't appreciate the truths that you were teaching me. Well, maybe they won't say the truths, but probably what they'll say is, I don't appreciate how you bluntly talk to me. I don't appreciate the manner in which you corrected me. And at times, we might feel like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. But what I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, is as long as you examine yourself first, you should remove the log from your own eye, and you are trying to lovingly confront this person because you see them in sin, sometimes the most loving thing for you to do is actually to confront them on their sin, to tell them and show them how lost they are, how caught up and how trapped they are in their sin and in their thinking. That's what God says is one of the most loving things that we can do as believers. Sometimes we have to tell hard truths to people. The scriptures say in Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If your friends don't look out for you, and they're not paying attention to your life, and they're not lovingly calling you out when you are in sin, when you have a sinful attitude, when you're ungrateful, when you're sinfully angry, when you're hiding from them. If they're not calling you out, they're not your friends. Or they're not, well, maybe they are your friends, but they're not acting in the most loving way towards you. Brothers and sisters, if we are to act in a loving manner to one another, sometimes it does mean that we must lovingly and patiently confront one another with the goal of restoring and restoring the person who is sinning back to God. There are going to be times when people will confront you, and you won't like the way that they confront you. There are going to be times when people tell you hard truths, and you don't want to hear it, because of maybe their tone was not nice, or uh, perhaps they didn't say it in the most loving way. And if they truly have erred in the way that they've approached you in their confrontation, that is on them. They do have the answer to God for that. But instead of getting mad and instead of getting super defensive about what they told you or how they told it to you, you really have to stop and consider, was what they told you true? Was what they told you true? Is it true for your life? There are times when people will overreach. They will be a little too strong. We kind of have that culture here at this church. It's more easy for us as this, in this church to do that, to be really quick about confronting and rebuking because we're a truth-driven church. And so there are times when people will sin against you when they rebuke you, or they'll rebuke you for something that's not rebukable, really. But you do have to consider, is there any truth to this? Do I actually need to watch out for my attitude? Do I actually need to watch out for my behaviors? And I'm not just, I'm not just saying, you guys need to do it, me too, okay? Me too. I'm probably, I, I'll be honest, I easily get Defensive. I easily get defensive. And I always have to humble myself and ask myself, is what I'm hearing about me, about my ministry, the way I'm doing things, is there any truth to that? Is there something that I need to repent of? That's how God wants us to do it. That's how God wants us to do it. That's why I bring it up. We have to operate based off of what's true. That's what John's reminding us here. He's reminding us of what's true, what we can trust. We can trust God's word because it's from from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has given us these things. He abides in us and we abide in him. So we can trust the instruction from the scriptures. You and I may not be facing the present dangers of false teachers who are trying to convince us that there is a secret knowledge that we don't have like John's readers did. But we do have present danger present danger of people. Some of them are false teachers, but there are others who are going to try to get us to deny what scriptures say, or at least concede that there are serious intellectual problems with what we believe. Or they'll say, the word of God doesn't exactly say that. It says this, God's word is perfect. And so is everything that it teaches. Where problems arise in terms of practice are often a result of improper study and poor application. And so the answer is not to get rid of the Bible or to open our minds. The answer is to study the Bible more and to strive to make sure that we are faithfully applying what we're learning from it, to make sure that God would be honored with how we're treating his word and how we're applying it to our lives. Abiding in, the tr- in Christ confirms the truth about Jesus to us as we study what God's word has to say about him. While we may experience seasons of doubt, those of us who have repented and placed our faith in Christ can be assured of the fact that this belief in Christ is not in vain. Everything that we have been taught from the scriptures is true because the Holy Spirit who gave us God's word is God. And as a result, we can have confidence in what we've been taught. We don't need any secret knowledge to help us grow in our spirituality. The command to abide in Jesus leads us now to respond to these truths with right behavior. So the second reason Christians are called to abide in Jesus is because abiding in Jesus motivates righteousness. Abiding in Jesus motivates righteousness. Verse 28, now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. John is their spiritual father, and he's demonstrating his loving care and affection for his readers by calling them little children. He's not condescending to them. He's not making fun of them. He's affectionately reaching out to them by calling them little children. And by doing so, he's drawing attention to the fact that they can trust him because of his father-child relationship with them, but he is also encouraging them to pay attention to what he's gonna say next. John wants his spiritual children to understand that the appropriate response to their anointing with the Holy Spirit and all that comes with it presently Uh, with it is for them to presently and continually abide in jesus that's a reiteration of what he of how he just ended verse 27 but it has a different nuance to it verse 27 focuses on how the truthfulness of the holy spirit uh, um, encourages believers to remain in jesus but verse 28 it focuses on the importance of abiding in jesus in light of what is to come in the future We already mentioned that the idea of abiding in Jesus is to remain in Jesus just as the Holy Spirit remains in us. That's a pretty clear picture of what it means to abide in Christ. But another picture that might help us understand what Jesus is calling his children to do is found back in John 15. John 15 is Jesus's I am statement where he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. And his point here, his point there is, if he is the main vine, and all of all of the Christians who love him and understand the right things uh, about him are connected to that main vine, we abide in him. If we share in his character and are one with him, it's for this reason. And Jesus says in verse five that uh, of uh, verse five of John fifteen that every branch that abides in him that every branch uh, abides in him while he abides in us. Our unity in, uh, is, is such his, that his righteous character is given to us, and our lives will demonstrate that righteousness. Right? When we say we're in Christ, that actually means something. Right? It's not that uh, it's a vague spiritual term, but you are actually in Christ. You're a part of him. You've been baptized into him. So, if we're in him and he is in us, we are going to act righteously. But if those fruits of righteousness are not evident in our lives, we are the branches that Jesus says in verse 6 will be thrown away, will dry up, and then will be cast into the fire in our burned. So he 's saying, if you 're not in him, you are in danger of eternal hell. Jesus goes on to explain in verse ten in verse ten that abiding in his love will be accomplished if we keep his commandments, just as he kept God the father 's commandments and abided in his love. So you see even Jesus kept God's commandments, and that's how he abided in God's love. So we who are in him should abide in his love by keeping his commandments. So the idea of abiding in Jesus is not merely talking about remaining faithful to him in what you say you believe, but it extends beyond that. It motivates right action as well. Let's go back to 1 John 2. As John calls his readers to abide in Jesus, it's clear that he is intentionally referring to the words of Jesus here by commanding them to abide in Jesus. Just He's bringing up that vine imagery. and As we mentioned earlier, the importance of abiding in Jesus, living in a manner that keeps the commandments of God to prove what righteousness truly is, is amplified because of what is to come in the end. When John refers to when Jesus will appear, here in verse 28, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus. John's readers know full well that Jesus has already come into the world once when he became a human. Right? Following his death and his resurrection, he ascended into heaven, always with the plan of coming back. We don't, have to, we don't have time to get into all the eschatology here, but he is coming back. He will physically come back to bring people home. That's the coming of Christ that is being referred to here. In 1 Thessalonians five two. Paul describes Jesus' second coming as an event that will happen like a thief in the night. 2 Peter 3.10, Peter uses the same imagery of a thief in the night to describe the suddenness of Christ's return. In both of these passages, the point the author highlights is how unpredictable Christ's return is going to be. There will be no warning. It will happen. It will just happen. Right? Sure, there may be signs that the coming of the Lord is near. Jesus himself says in Matthew 24 that you will hear, that you will hear people claim to be him. You're going to hear of wars, rumors of wars. You're going to see famines. You're going to see earthquakes. Those are some of the signs that indicate Christ, Christ's return is near right but in all of human history every single time we get a big earthquake people are thinking is Jesus coming back and it's like well maybe but we don't know right when we hear of wars we're thinking oh is Jesus coming back remember just last year when we were in danger of possibly having a nuclear war between korea uh, and uh, north korea and and us we're thinking oh no war that's bad but maybe Jesus is coming back so it's okay Did Jesus come back? No, right? We're still here. But we do know that though these signs are are there and Jesus hasn't come back, it still means that his return is imminent. We just don't know when. We're still waiting for him to come back. And even though the signs are there, there's no telling whether that was when Jesus actually meant he's going to come back. And that's the whole point. Jesus is certainly coming back, but we don't know when that's going to be. And that shouldn't lead you to complacency. We shouldn't have an attitude that gives up on righteousness because we understand that we are representatives of the king and ought to be doing his work. We ought to be doing the work that advances his kingdom. If you get lazy and you think that you can take a break when it comes to godliness because, well, God's probably not coming back anytime soon. I should be okay if I just you know, indulge in a little sin here and there. That's not an attitude that honors God. If you think that you have the right to act however you want because God's going to forgive you anyway, or you believe that, well, God understands my struggle. He's gonna, He'll forgive me. He'll give me a pass. If that's your view of who God is and what he does... Your view of God is not the view of God that's taught in the scriptures. It's a Mr. Potato Head view of God where you plug in what you want God to look like so long as you get to do whatever you want. When Paul and Peter... Are describing the coming of the Lord as a thief in the night. They both describe it in the context of encouraging and exhorting believers to act in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, so that when Christ comes back, we won't be caught doing things that we would be ashamed of doing in the presence of God. We know what that's like, right? If someone busts open the door of your room, what are you doing? And you're like, Ugh! I mean, of course you might be scared because it's like it's a startling thing, right? But if you were doing something that you shouldn't be doing, and they busted into your room like that, is it their fault? No. Whose fault is it that you were doing something that you're ashamed of? It's yours. What there's what what Paul and Peter are saying is don't don't be caught living a lifestyle that you would be ashamed of if christ were to come back at any time and john is teaching the exact same thing when he says that we are to abide in jesus so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming this confidence that we are to have at the coming of christ is not a confidence in ourselves we're not to be we're not to be braggadocious about who we are or our ability to be righteous before God. But what that confidence is, is a calmness. It's a lack of fear. It's if God busted open the door and you're like, hi God, I ain't doing anything wrong. It's that kind of confidence. It's that lack of fear because you're doing what's right. Because you know that because you're doing what's right, he will accept you. There's no more condemnation for you. And this is not to say that we will be accepted because we did not sin. But it's an acceptance that is made possible because of the forgiveness we receive in Christ. It is that crediting of righteous, of his righteousness to our accounts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to grow us to become more like Christ in every single area of our lives. When we're doing what is right before God, we will have no need for fear. We don't need to look behind our backs. We don't need to fear that someone will come upon us as we're doing something that we're going to be ashamed of. Because there's nothing that brings us shame. We will at times sin. We will at times fail to act in a manner that allows us to have confidence. But we should not dwell on our sins and stay lost in them. We should repent quickly. And produce fruits of genuine repentance, knowing that if we confess our sins, what? God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Those who do not repent of of their sins, but continue to live in a constant pursuit of their sins, they should naturally have less confidence about their salvation. When Christ comes back, they should naturally fear because they're found not living a righteous life. There is a sense in which those who would be ashamed when Christ returns should doubt their salvation. As we saw back in John 15, those who love Jesus are those who obey his commandments. So, How can you say if you love your sin that you are fulfilling even the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength when you are consciously or when we are consciously choosing to pursue sin and to neglect our own spiritual life? You can't say that, right? We can't, we can't. For those who struggle with sin, at least you're struggling. But what I'm talking about is for those who say that they're struggling, but they're not actually trying to fight. When you confess your sin to God, you actually need to repent. You actually need to repent. We know that God will forgive us of our sins, but we need to put sin away, to turn towards righteousness and to pursue it with our full heart and energy. God will forgive you of your sin and you will not be in the category of those who, who, who need to be ashamed. But it's for those of you who choose not to fight. You are the ones who should doubt. It's for those of you who barely do anything outside of showing up to church that should wonder whether you're actually struggling with sin Or if you're just saying you're struggling with sin, but you're actually fully enslaved to your sin. There is a difference. You could be enslaved to sin because you were born into it and you never left. Or you could be enslaved to sin because even though you were freed, you fell back in. Though you may have said the words of repentance, even if you've served the church in many ways, and you've, have you truly sought to turn away from your sins and love Jesus, or are you still lost in your sins, trying to earn righteousness on your own, but you have no love for God? If you're still lost in your sins and you've merely been putting on Christian clothes when it's time to go to church and be around church people, there is hope in the gospel. Because what we're talking about is a heart issue. What we're talking about is a heart issue. You might feel like it's hopeless. There's nothing that you can do. And it's true. There is nothing that you can personally do. Right? But the fact that it's a heart issue, that should actually give you great joy and great hope. Because that's what the gospel is all about. Is it not? The gospel is about changing your heart. Giving you a new heart a heart of flesh to replace your heart of stone. Is that not what the gospel's about? There is hope for you this evening. There is hope. Will you ask God for forgiveness of sin? Will you strive to turn away from your sins with the help of the Holy Spirit and with those around you here at church? God truly does love you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to free you from your bondage to sin. He has shown you a great mercy by allowing for you to hear the gospel. So will you take it and be saved this very night? For those of you who are Christians and you are caught in temporary enslavement to your sin, I urge you to take John's words seriously. Sure, you might have some time to start taking your faith seriously, but if you truly love God, Don't wait to turn away from your sins in a meaningful way. Don't give your sin runway. Don't just wait for one more time. Seek to be made right with the Lord. Because you love him. Because you know he loves you. And think about it this way too. Are the comforts that you seek after a long day at work really worth the risk of being found in your sin and ashamed of your condition when Christ returns? Is your life truly so busy that you have absolutely no time to spend with the God who loved you and saved you from your sins? Are you really that busy? Are you really that burdened where you can't love him? What I'm saying to you applies to me too. I've needed to check myself on this. I've needed to think about this. But praise God for his grace. Do we have legitimate reasons for not cultivating our relationship with God as much as we should? Or are all of our reasons, for the reasons uh, for reasons why we don't pursue God, just excuses for why we don't strive to put our sins to death. I understand that there are times when we might legitimately struggle to find time to spend with God. If you 're working full time and you 're caring for an ailing parent or a sibling, it 's going to be hard for you to find time to spend with God. Right? you 're busy. You're caring for people, you're trying to show them the love of Christ. There are times where when things are really crazy like that and really stressful like that, you will forget to do your divas. Right? But that's a legitimate reason. Right? If you're battling a long term illness that's very debilitating, you can barely stay up, you can barely concentrate, the way that you're gonna pursue after God's gonna look different from someone who is fully healthy. So that's a legitimate reason, too. However, the majority of us, me included, all we have are excuses. Excuses are the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Excuses are are the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. I'm too tired after a long day at work. I had a stressful day. I just need to relax. Relax. I'm just too busy with meetups and ministry. The list goes on and on. While we might allow each other to get away with these excuses, would God agree with us? Do you really have no time? Do you really need to relax by engaging in hours and hours and hours of entertainment? Right, think about it. When you say that you have no time for your devos, let's say you get home at 6 Let's say you finish eating dinner by 7. Between 7 and 10, you have three hours. What are you going to do? You got time. You have time. You have plenty of it. And that's just at the end of the workday. What about before the workday? What about during your lunch? Right. Skin of a reason. stuffed lie. That's what we give God as an excuse. Sorry, God, I can't do my divas this week. Just too busy. Too tired. can't do it. Every time I try and do my divas, I'm too tired. I just can't, can't do it. Would God agree with us in our excuses? If that stings you, believe me, it stings me too. Right. Yes, there is grace. Oh, thank God there is grace. But you and I have to be careful of taking advantage of God's grace to justify our slothfulness in growing in godliness. I'm not trying to be legalistic here. I want us to be realistic. And if you're pushing back against me in your mind, think about why. Or don't worry about me. Remember, I have no authority. I'm a fellow sinner just like you. I have no authority, but I do when I'm telling you what God says. Will God agree with you when your idea of working where you need to grow boils down to when I get around to it? Will he agree with you? You don't have to answer me on this, okay? I'm not holding you accountable unless I'm discipling you Then I am. But you don't answer to me on this. You answer to God, right? You answer to God. And I don't, del- I don't say this to you because I delight in making you feel bad. I say this to you out of a love and concern for your soul as a fellow brother in Christ. I say this to you because I know what it is like to say that you're working on godliness When it really is just, I'm working on it when it's most convenient for me. I've been there. I've done that. And I'm still working through that. Because we're working on this together, I want to lovingly challenge you, even if it feels like I'm attacking you, to begin to live your life for God now. Why? Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. When we know that Jesus Christ is righteous, we're going to abide in him. And that close relationship with Christ will naturally result in a continual and present practice of righteousness for those who are truly spiritual sons and daughters of God. And John is not saying that those who are born of God will always practice righteousness as a result of being born of God. Rather, we will resemble God in our righteous conduct. We will prove that we are his children through our resemblance to him in righteousness. One of the greatest ways that this is put on display is found in how we respond after we sin. Are we quick to repent? Are we willing to own up to our sin and bear any consequences that result from them? Are we quick to make wrongs right? This has great importance in church life, but it has practical uh, practical importance and play in your family life, in your friendships, and if you desire marriage, in your marriage. I'm not perfect. You can ask any of my family members who are here this evening. But what I want to do desperately is to grow to be like Jesus so that in all of my relationships, people can see Christ. They can see that I'm striving to honor Christ even if I don't feel like it. There are a lot of times where I don't feel like it. There are a lot of times where I have to catch my own attitude because I know that I'm sinful. And some of my instinctive reactions are sinful reactions. Because of that, that's why I constantly have to strive to think, what does god say what does god want will he be pleased in the way that i am interpreting this situation right now will he be pleased in the way that i am reacting to this situation right now and if he is not to own up to it to say i'm sorry will you forgive me for being unloving will you forgive me for being inconsiderate will you forgive me for being judgmental will you forgive me for being impatient How you respond after you sin is one of the greatest ways that you can show how much you love God. How do you respond to that? If you confess your sins and return to, return to the Lord right away, that's great. That's fantastic. That's what pleases Him. But if you're trying to hide your sin and, and to continue to live in its shadow, that's not pleasing to Him. If the way that you confess sin is basically saying, I'm sorry that I sinned against you, but you, right, that's not confession, is it? What's that? It's blame shifting, right? It's blame shifting. I would have done what was right, but because you did this to me, I responded in anger. That's not, that's not owning up to your sin, right? Why? because you did this to me, because this happened, because that happened. That's not ownership. You need to take ownership of your sin. We all have our own sins. Don't think that it's other people. Other people don't make you sin. James 1 tells you that where sin resides is in your heart. It's your own heart. The external things all the things outside of you, it's like the hot water to the teabag of your heart. It will show what's going on in here. It doesn't make you sin. It just reveals it. So what matters most is how will you respond once your sin is revealed? This evening, we've had the opportunity to examine the two reasons why Christians are to abide in Christ. Abiding in Jesus teaches truth, and it also motivates righteousness. We might not face that same identity crisis that John's original audience faces when it comes to what we've been taught about Christ. But what we've seen this evening is that truth cannot be separated from righteous conduct in the life of believers. What you know and believe must influence how you live your life. For instance, if you believe that washing your hands frequently during flu season will help you avoid the flu, wouldn't you wash your hands frequently and carry hand sanitizer for those times when you can't wash your hands? You're not going to be like, you should wash your hands and then just start to touch, touch your phone and your mouth and your nose and then go touch other people. Bring your phone into the bathroom and touch your phone and then walk out without washing your hands. Sneezing into your hands and then go touching other people, right? You would wash your hands. You would practice hygiene. Knowledge always influences belief. So let us grow in our knowledge of the word to be both doers, hearers and doers of the word, even though it is hard. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for your your word, for how it confirms to us your truth. We know that we don't perfectly know it, we don't perfectly understand it, we don't perfectly live by it, but we're grateful that you give us your word, that it doesn't change, that we always have it with us. So that when we forget, when we're struggling, we can pick up your word We can be reminded of the truth that is found in it. So that even when we feel unsettled because we're not sure whether what we believe squares with what the culture says, that we can look to your word and be reminded of what the truth is, so that we can stand firm by it. We're grateful for your word, God. We pray that, Lord, you would help us to not allow this knowledge that comes from your word to stay in our minds to make us spiritually obese. But we pray that, Lord, you would help us to put that knowledge to practice, that you would help us to have right practice because of it. Help us, Lord, we pray, to be, to to prove ourselves to be your sons and your daughters in the way that we respond to the truth. Help us to take our sins seriously so that in everything you might be pleased. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.